Hello, this is Media Files, a podcast about big ideas and themes in the Australian media. I'm Andrew Dodd. Today, it's journalism versus the big banks with Adele Ferguson, the celebrated journalist who many credit as the driving force behind the Royal Commission into the banking industry. Adele is a business reporter with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age and a columnist for the Financial Review. Over many years, her reporting has exposed the way financial institutions have flouted the rules and how regulators like ASIC have consistently failed to do their job of holding financial institutions to account. I'm joined by co-hosts Matthew Rickardson from Deakin University and Andrea Carson from La Trobe University. Adele, welcome to Media Files. Pleasure. First question is, do you think the Royal Commission went far enough? Definitely not didn't go anywhere near far enough. You know, some of the core issues that um, were covered was remuneration and conflicted structures, which we call vertical integration, where the banks also own wealth management divisions. The Royal Commission really looked at that. Everybody thought they were going to come out with a recommendation saying banks can't own wealth management anymore because of so much that had happened over the years. He decided not to. Commissioner Kenneth Hayne steered right away from that. He also really didn't go far enough with remuneration, which was another really key issue that came out of it, that a lot of the motivation was greed. And it was because of, um, you know, these big fat bonuses that uh, executives get and also the frontline staff get targets and bonuses. He didn't really touch on that. He left that for APRA and others to deal with. And also the issue of remediation, helping those who have been ripped off by the bank get some of their funds back. That wasn't really tackled. No, and it was part of the terms of reference. So that was a big surprise to me. He looked at uh, compensation of last resort, which is a $30 million fund. But we're talking about, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars over the years of people that have been ripped off. He didn't go anywhere near that. So you've done all this work to try and get this Royal Commission to happen, and it did happen and exposed all sorts of um, things along the way. So in many ways it was positive, but then you get this kind of whammy at the end. What's that like? Yeah, it was disappointing. You know, I tried to be positive because it really did put the spotlight on a sector that was crying out for it. So there's been some reform. There is now a knowledge by the the public that there's something rotten gone on in this sector. So you've actually seen with superannuation funds where um, there's been quite a flow from retail funds into industry funds. So it has had some impact, which I think is a, is a real positive. What did you make of the political response, particularly some of the language and um, perhaps changes of decisions around mortgage brokers? Well, I wasn't surprised, actually. I've been looking at the sector. You know, I've just written a book. And I've gone back to 1983 with the deregulation of the markets. And what you find is the scandals throughout that time and um, the lobby groups get involved. And by the time these reports come out, the lobby groups have totally gone in and it gets watered down to an inch of its life. And that's what we saw with mortgage broking. So you think the lobby groups were uh, speaking to the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, on mortgage broking post the commission? They would have been talking to Frydenberg and backbenchers. There was a, there would have been a lot, they were doing TV ads. There was a huge amount of money that went into changing that. 
Well, the argument put forward at the time was some sympathy that it was a whole industry that would collapse overnight if the changes went ahead to cut the mortgage brokers out of the uh, the chain of supply. Yeah, but the thing I didn't understand, I thought Haynes' recommendation wasn't quite right. What he was saying was instead of having um, commissions, you have a flat fee and the consumer has to pay that. I actually don't get that. Why can't the bank pay it? You know, if you're a customer, you go to a mortgage broker, they have about 12 banks on their panel and they then pick which one. Normally they'll pick the one that's giving them the better commission. So that's where the conflict comes in. What if they pick the bank that's best for you and that bank then pays the money? That would be helpful. I mean, you you have identified a a lot of structural problems that weren't really addressed. One of the others that you've also identified a lot in your writing is the the role of the regulators who, who you're scathing about. Can you... I mean, how come you were so scathing about them? What was the source of their problem or their shortcomings? I think it was just a, a lack of will to do anything. You know, they knew what was going going on and they just didn't have the will to make changes. So you can sort of liken it to a school. You have, you have naughty kids and the headmaster or the principal uh, decides not to meter out any punishment of sorts, what's going to happen? The kids are just going to keep on doing it and pushing the boundaries and getting worse and worse. And that's what we had. You know, we're meant to have a regulator that actually looks after customers. So what, what do you think was the reason for their failure? Was it a question of resources or will or was the environment in the actual regulator not a strong culture there or was it something to do with perhaps governments of the day not really wanting them to push too hard, or I don't know what, but what, what do you think? I think it was a combination of all of that. There mm. there was definitely an under-resourcing of the regulators, no question about that. But then there was this lack of will to to actually do anything. You know, so they, they'd complain that they didn't have, you know, the right penalties, but they didn't use the penalties that they had. It was all negotiating. They didn't want to be seen anti- corporates. So they tried to negotiate, do deals, and they ended up, you know, losing any fear that you meant to have in a regulator. You described ASIC as being captive, which is, um, I mean, that's strong language to say a regulator is captive to the bodies that it's meant to be regulating. And you go on to say that often it's the regulated that are determining what the regulator does so that through enforceable undertakings and other mechanisms like that, the banks have all the control. Well, also the what you talk about with the with the ASIC and running to the banks and showing them draft press releases that they were about to release about the bank and what the bank had been doing wrong, and giving them final power of approval over what was going to be written in the press release, which I have to say was staggering. It is, and that that actually came out. A lot of that came out in the Royal Commission. Mm. And that's where, you know, Commissioner Haynes said, you know, he it almost did his head in saying, are you telling me that the the regulated is telling the regulator what goes in a press release? You know, and, it, and we're talking about words misleading and deceptive conduct. Those words were coming out of press releases. Or instead of giving a penalty, like Commissioner Haynes was saying, of $8 million dollars, they're saying in emails, do you? How would you feel about a three hundred thousand dollar community benefit? If you're a um, the public reading that press release, 
you really don't think they've done much wrong if misleading and deceptive isn't in the press release and they're giving a community benefit payment. It totally transforms what they've done. So if the regulators have not been doing their job properly, the Royal Commission, you say you were surprised by uh, the strength of the findings, um, that they perhaps could have been stronger, and the political response has been a little lacklustre. Where does this leave the victims, those that came forward and had uh, lost their life's fortunes? Well, I think they do have more power now because we've now got all of the media behind this. You know, previously it was only pockets of the media that were writing about these stories. Now we've got all the media has got a very strong appetite. So customers have a voice. But haven't we been in this place before? If you look um, before the 1987 stock market crash and then again before the 2007 collapse, which showed the wrongdoings of organisations like Storm. Are these cyclical problems that the media turns its attention to other things and then comes back to them? I know Joseph Stiglitz in the US, the um, Nobel Prize winner, said that media reporting before the global um, financial crisis was not as strong as it ought to have been. No, you're right. But I think I think this was different. Uh, Storm, it was, it was, the banks were able to argue that it was isolated cases I don't think they can do that anymore. I think we have now had it laid bare that this has been institution. It's been industrialized theft, you know, writ large, and they ca- they can't. They've they've owned up to that. And previously, it looked like you know, yeah, you had a stock market crash, and hey, this went wrong, but we're sorry. With Storm, it was the same thing. This is this is very different. Is it going to tighten lending, though, and make it more difficult for perhaps first home buyers to be able to get loans? Well, it has already. This is responsible lending, but, you know, you've got to look at it in another way. They were lending money out to people that shouldn't have been lent money. Some people were buying, you know, six, seven, eight properties that they couldn't afford because they were getting, you know, the mortgage brokers or introducers or whoever were getting commissions and the banks were getting you know, profits from this, it created a bubble. You know, so what are you meant to do? Um, you know, let, let the banks keep on lending like topsy. Well, sorry, just a, this might sound like a dumb question, but why is it that if the banks have been irresponsible in all of their lending, why is it that first home buyers would now cop it in the neck for that? Well, first home buyers have copped it in the neck because it's, it's increased property prices. But if if one of the lines of rhetoric that the banks appear to be putting out post the Royal Commission is that this is going to mean you know liquidity is tighter and so on and so on, if they've been creating the problem in the first place, why why is the ordinary customer suffering still now? Is what I don't quite understand. Because they've had to rein in the responsible lending. Irresponsible lending. Well, well, it has been irresponsible lending, yeah. absolutely. Right. And they've they've got to rein that in. Okay. Um, they overdid it. You know, ANZ actually admitted that they had, you know, been overly conservative in uh, examining who who can afford a loan and who can't. And now they've realised that they they overstepped the mark. And so they're going to start lending more. So I think they panicked during the Royal Commission. They thought that something was going to happen with responsible lending laws. And Hain backed right away from that. So if the regulators weren't doing their job, at what point did journalism step up and start doing their job for them? And how did that happen? 
It happened really 100% because of whistleblowers, you know, who came forward, you know, and many of them came to me, you know, so the first one that came to me was Jeff Morris, um, who was a financial advisor at Commonwealth Bank. He'd initially gone to ASIC and it'd take them 16 months to act. And when they did, it wasn't, it wasn't much acting, to be quite honest. And he was very jaded, so he decided to try the media. And that really had a cascade. Why did he come to you as distinct from the person sitting at the desk next to you? Well, there there was actually a few reasons. One, he he had actually gone to a few other journalists who weren't interested. Uh, He came to me because um, Senator John Williams um, actually suggested he talk to me. He'd actually gone to John Williams. He'd tried many politicians who weren't listening and he'd gone to John Williams. And I'd worked with John on a number of stories on the liquidators and they felt that I was probably a good choice because I was involved with, I'd written a book on Gina Reinhart and um, she she was trying to get my contacts. Yes, and I Yeah, and um, we were fighting it. So they thought, you know, here's an ideal, you know, if you, if you want someone, you can trust this person because she's not going to hand over her contacts. So it was a, there was a combination of factors. So, so how did you work with him as the whistleblower to get the story? How do you work with whistleblowers who are being harassed by others and who are giving up a lot to talk to you and tell their story? Well, yeah, you have to give them a lot of time and really convince them that, you know, they, they come and they're very nervous and they're waxing and waning whether they should do it. And you really have to just ride it through with them and really try and calm them and keep them on track. Right at the beginning, how do you know what their motives are and whether it's someone that you can trust their story? Well, you don't. You really have to, you know, it's, it's like a joint edge. They have to work through you and you have to work out what's making them tick and whether they actually have, you know, the evidence. You know, a lot of people come to me and they say they've got the crown jewels and, you know, you'll spend quite a bit of time and realise well, that... They've got a whiz-fizz packet in steel. Yeah, that's right. You know, so it, it, it's, it's sort of two-way street. Does Australia do enough to protect whistleblowers? Definitely not. I think, you know, the example of the ATO whistleblower who a few days before, well, the day before we um, went to interview him, he got a letter uh, from the tax office threatening him. And then a few weeks later, just as we were about to go to air on Four Corners, um, he rang me up early in the morning to say that, you know, he was being raided. And now he's facing, you know, 160 odd years in jail for breaching 67 um, offences. And how does that make you feel as a journalist? I'm not uh, implying that you should feel responsible, but uh, you you know that uh, there can be heavy-handed responses to whistleblowers. That's right. And you have to, you know, if they don't know, you have to let them know. So in Richard Boyle's case, he knew exactly what he was doing. You know, the tax office had written warning him, making it clear. And then he, he kept going anyway. He, he wanted the truth out there, you know, regardless of what that meant. So these are incredibly brave people who the media are totally dependent on to tell these stories. Well, I think the media and I think the public, everybody is dependent on these people. If you think about many of the exposés over the last goodness knows how many years, at the core of them is an insider. 
What I think characterizes a lot of your journalism is that you're not afraid to take on the big end of town, but you tend to keep the ordinary person and their stories at the center of your reporting. It's the thing that gives that uh, approach to your work real authenticity and legitimacy because it's their stories that you're amplifying. And whether it's the 7-Eleven employees who are ripped off or the people who aged care homes. Yeah, or who find that they're not getting compensated for a heart attack because common has changed the definition on them of a heart attack. It's, it's, how would you describe the way you approach these kind of stories? Well, th- th- I guess that's what it is, you know, because if, if you're just reporting business, you know, typical business journalism is looking at the, you know, company releases its results. You report the results have gone up or down, share prices done, whatever. I, I try to do it a little bit differently and look behind those numbers and see, you know, what's driving them. Is it legitimate or is it not legitimate? Because if it's not, you know, I want to know about it. And, you know, the whistleblower will come forward, you know, and might help. But it's also about, you know, what's the impact of that, you know, in terms of, you know, retirement villages or the tax office, you know, these profits or targets or whatever they have consequences. And I think that the people who they're hurting need to have a voice. So how do you steady yourself and not be intimidated when someone like Gina Reinhart, who has incredibly deep pockets, comes after you and is going to litigate? How how do you face that? And what do you think is the value of the institutional power of a large media organisation? I uh, I think it's it's immense. That one was a, a curly one, though, because uh, the week before the book came out on Reinhardt, she'd actually increased her stake in Fairfax from a few yeah, percent. Yeah, that's right. She did too. seventeen percent, and she wanted to um, didn't want to sign the Independence Charter. So and the board opposed that, didn't they? They, they took did. a stand. They did. You know, so that was the background to that. And then the next thing was, you know, getting the subpoena to hand over the contacts. So, yeah, it was that one was a little bit different because, you know, she was also the major shareholder of a company that I worked for. Were there sleepless nights with that one? Yeah, there were actually. Yeah, I, you know, my daughter was young at the time. You know, yeah, it was very stressful because it was... Um, she issued the subpoena in WA, and at the time, there's all the shield laws are different from state to state. So she had really shopped around, and yeah, it could have gone the wrong way. But in the end, she ended up paying, didn't she? Yeah, she, she had did. to pay the costs. Yeah, it took a while. Would you get that kind of protection now from Fairfax's new owners, from Channel Nine? Do you think? Yeah, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah, they have um, made it clear that it's business as usual. Uh, that's what I wanted to ask you about. In fact, we all wanted to ask you about the new culture, if in fact there is a new culture in Fairfax and how, if at all, that's changed as a result of the merger. No, it hasn't. Not at all. Um, in June, we're moving in with Channel 9, but we're we're separate, you know, so we're completely separate. You know, the um, editor of The Age, Alex Lavelle, is still the editor. He's still doing everything the same. So, so your, nothing, your email address, for example, for a whistleblower, a prospective whistleblower, hasn't changed from, you know, Fairfax to nine or whatever. No, it's changed to the age. So yeah. it, it's it's changed to the particular masthead that you work for. And, and the name Fairfax has disappeared, though. It has completely disappeared. Yeah. Yeah, much to the chagrin of what's left of the Fairfax family. 
just when you were, we were talking before about where the impulse, if you like, comes from for your stories, and I think you're absolutely right that most business journalism is very much facts and figures and dividends and shareholdings and so on. Where has that come from for you that you are so focused on on individuals, whether it's franchisees for Seven Eleven or or elderly people in nursing homes or wherever? Where I'm just interested where that comes from for you. Yeah, look, it's come from a long time. You know, I, I remember um, in the early 2000s uh, thinking that liquidators were the white knights when a company got into trouble, they'd come in. And I remember someone telling me, no, they're actually the bottom feeders. They will, you know, rape and pillage until there's, you know, nothing left. And that really shocked me. And then I started digging into that and it was talking to people who had been ripped off or the, you know, companies that had gone under and the liquidators had just, you know, they end up getting one or two cents in the dollar and they're getting millions of dollars. It was really probably that maybe okay. was the and catalyst. Okay. And were you working for BRW at that time? I was, yeah. yeah, I was. You know, and that went on to, it was a car lovers where it was a liquidator who was, you know, charging for everything. You know, he was taking his family um, overseas on these, you know, luxurious trips, hairdressing appointments, you know, hotels, you know, real largesse. And these people were just absolutely fleeced. I, I get the sense that you must have a pretty low opinion of the top end of town because this word greed just keeps coming up in, in these kind of large financial institutional settings where people are just routinely ripping people off. It's a shame, you know, there's there's some who who do the right thing and I think, you know, they should be, you know, applauded. It's, you know, I'm not anti-business. I just, I think what I do is to expose bad pr business practices so that business can be better because we're, we're better than this. Adele Ferguson, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Adele Ferguson, business reporter with The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald and columnist with the Financial Review. This has been The Media Files, which you can download from The Conversation and several other podcast platforms. Thanks to Andy Hazel and Gavin Neighbour for production and to co-hosts Matthew Rickardson from Deakin University and Andrea Carson from La Trobe University. I'm Andrew Dodd. See you next time for Media Files. Media Files.